On September 27, 2022, the Foreign Policy Forum hosted Ambassador Michael McKinley, a four-time ambassador to Peru, Colombia, Afghanistan, and Brazil. His 37-year career as a diplomat covered issues in development, trade, and peace negotiations. In his address, Ambassador McKinley argues that the U.S. has a responsibility to engage in a new way with our hemispheric neighbors to the South. Please enjoy the forum. Well, thank you, Heather, for that nice introduction. And thank you all for the invitation to be with you this evening. And I know I am supposed to focus on Latin America, so I will but uh, always happy uh, to range broadly in the Q&A um, if there is an interest. And I'm going to try to keep the remarks relatively concise, and I'll judge from audience reaction as I move along. But uh, I think uh, the buildup uh, for the talk this evening was focused on what U.S. relationship with Latin America should be particularly in the wake of what was called the Summit of the Americas meeting, which took place in Los Angeles in June of this year, which is a regional gathering, a Western Hemisphere gathering of countries that takes place every three years, was launched by President Clinton in 1994. This was the ninth edition, but it took place in circumstances in which there were many questions being raised about whether it would be the last summit of the Americas, and questions about the relationship of the United States with the region, but also questions about how the region looks at the United States. I've written a couple of times uh, in journals on the summit of the Americas, and uh, but preparing for this evening, I thought, I didn't want to just repeat what I had uh, presented before. So if you'll bear with me, what I had in mind was trying to put the, the summit in the context of our relationships with Latin America going back over the past three decades. How did we arrive at this point? Why are we in the situation we are at this moment? And what can we do going forward? And so, uh, if you'll allow me, I'll take that approach uh, in my remarks. So the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles this year was supposed to be a reset occasion for the United States um, with Latin America and with the Caribbean region. Both uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, deeply affected by the ravages of the COVID pandemic, deep political polarization, which was exacerbated by glaring racial and economic inequalities in many countries. It was the weakening of democratic processes and institutions in many countries. It was the impact of climate change, particularly in Central America and Caribbean islands. A resurgence of what technically are called transnational criminal organizations but we can simplify into drug trafficking organizations um, supplemented by people smuggling organizations and the like. And there was the crisis in Venezuela, which had been ongoing for years, but which unleashed a migration crisis in the region, which for the first time was not focused on people trying to just reach the borders of the United States, but which had very direct impact on countries like Colombia, where two million Venezuelans currently reside, Ecuador, where there's upwards of 700,000, Peru, where there's estimates of up to a million Venezuelans, hundreds of thousands in Chile, a couple of hundred thousand in Brazil, get the picture. Um, and certainly uh, made for the first time, frankly, in discussions of migration in the region, not a question of the border of the United States with Mexico, but a hemispheric-wide uh, issue. President Biden, in this context, was seen as the most knowledgeable president ever in terms of understanding Latin America. He had taken 
across his political career, both in the Senate and as vice president, 16 visits to the region. And so when he came into office, there was very much the expectation and very much the expectation of the Summit of the Americas that there would be a reset. So what went wrong? And the question mark would be also, what was there something that had been wrong for some time that could not easily be corrected? Here's the parenthetical for me. It's uh, extraordinarily important to recognize that policy towards Latin America, or indeed any other region of the world, is not taking place in a vacuum. The world is undergoing a profound shift right now. Old paradigms are being broken, new ones created. And the unipolar moment for the United States, which followed the Cold War, um, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, when the United States emerged dominant politically, militarily, economically, and for the next 20 years or so, certainly operated uh, on that premise, um, is being replaced by something that's much more unsettled, much more unclear going forward. And with many pressing demands that are impacting the United States directly with developments around the world and developments inside the United States. I don't usually sort of promote articles um, because I know it's uh, difficult to access many of them behind paywalls. But I do want to draw attention to an article that just came out by Richard Haas, who many of you may have seen or he may have spoken to you at some point, um, one of our preeminent experts in the country on global affairs in the United States and the world. And in Foreign Affairs, he was published an article in the last two to three, four days called The Dangerous Decade. And unlike many other commentators, in fact, unlike some of the stuff he's written in the past year or two, less certainty about what we're looking at going forward. And the way he described it is the confluence of old and new threats, geopolitical conflicts colliding with new threats or issues to respond to, from climate change to pandemics, nuclear proliferation, question about democracy abroad, question about democracy in the United States, how to deal with uh, emergent China and with a Russia that has become threatening to its neighbors. And he could have added the economic uncertainty, which I think certainly over the past six to nine months we've all been experiences. So, in other words, President Biden, in preparing for the Summit of the Americas or dealing with Latin America, is also dealing with perhaps one of the most, is dealing with perhaps one of the most important shifts in the environment in which American foreign policy takes place. I'm happy to discuss all of those issues in Q&A, but I wanted to put that point out. We cannot talk about what should be done with Latin America or how the United States relates to Latin America without taking into account everything else that is happening around uh, the world. President Biden arrived in office with another challenge. President Trump before him over four years came in with a foreign policy which was very much focused on uh, inward and repositioning the United States internationally. And that included withdrawing from multilateral organizations, withdrawing from international agreements like the Paris uh, Climate Accord, uh, frankly not being as committed to some of our security alliances like uh, with Korea, with Japan in East Asia, or with NATO in Europe, and with very different approaches to trade agreements, globalization, integration, and so as he um, spent his first year in office, a lot of it was trying to bring things back to where the rest of the world thought the United States was in 2016 and had been for the previous decades. 
So this is the context for what we saw in uh, Los Angeles. But there were wider issues at play. The United States, the Los Angeles, what it did was expose the fault lines in the relationship between uh, the United States and the wider Latin American Caribbean region. And the US, it turns out, had few responses for how to engage with Latin America that is rapidly changing and facing these extraordinary challenges that I've already identified and changing more than at any time in living memory. It's interesting, and um, as I was preparing to speak today, I thought, well, you know, there must have been a golden age, or certainly a better age, uh, in terms of US Latin American policy. I'm going to do very broad brush stroke here. But basically, from 1945 to about 1989, our focus on Latin America was primarily on containing communism, defeating left-wing insurgencies, eventually highly focused on Cuba, and less so on developmental issues, trade concerns, promotion of democracy. We didn't ignore it. President Kennedy launched the Alliance for Progress, focused on development objectives. I worked on Central America in the early 80s, and I can assure you a lot of the work we did there in very controversial circumstances was on building institutions, trying to broaden freedoms, increase respect for human rights in the midst of terrible civil wars. But the, from 1989 onwards, there was definitely a very significant change in how the United States engaged with the region. And if we look at it, and I'm going to summarize very quickly, this focus on trade, building democracy, stronger relations, human rights, and frankly, on dealing with migration questions and dealing with drug trafficking. But to give you a sense of just how dynamic it was in the 1990s and into the 2000s, on trade, uh, in the 1991, the launch of the Andean Trade Preferences Act, 1993, the agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States on NAFTA, which is now called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. The concept for a free trade agreement area for the Americas was set in 1994, even if it was never uh, uh, realized. There was a resolution in the Organization of American States supporting regional democracy in 2001 an inter-American uh, democracy charter uh, launched. Uh, there were uh, active support for uh, democracies under threat in places like Guatemala, Panama, uh, Paraguay. Um, as we went into the 2000s, trade agreements with the Dominican Republic, with the Central American countries, with Peru, with Colombia, assistance to Mexico, on drug trafficking, uh, and so on. It was a period in the, the 2000s when Latin America also began to turn leftward in uh, many places, particularly Venezuela under President Chavez, but also in Ecuador under President Correa, Bolivia under President Morales. But it wasn't a, sort of a black and white um, situation. It was, in fact, a moment when there seemed to be a lot happening that was positive in the relationship. But guess how people, the experts in Washington, looked at Latin America, the United States, in 2008. So I dug out Council of Foreign Relations report, Brookings, a couple of others. And allow me to quote. Let's see. Uh, U.S. policymakers must change the way they think about Latin America. Latin America is not Washington's to lose, nor is it Washington's to save. Latin America's fate is largely in Latin American hands. U.S. policy cannot, no, can no longer be based on assumption that the United States is the most important outside actor in China, um, and so on. In other words, there was always, already this sense of a developing distance between the United States and the region, and that the United States had to come up with a different way to engage the region 
Well, a lot of positive was going on compared to where we are now. But what set the context in Latin America for where we are now was the 2008 um, financial meltdown in the United States where we started turning inward. And second, from 2013, 2014 on, the bust of the commodity boom, which had helped Latin America prosper for the previous 15 years, in which probably 150 million Latin Americans were raised out of poverty or working class conditions into lower middle class, middle class existence, a period in which most of the region, with the exception of Cuba, had at least on paper democratically elected governments, and where there seemed to be broader optimism about Latin America's importance and place uh, in the world, and the corresponding interest of the United States, as I, we saw with what I mentioned, in strengthening the ties. Um, the, the, the double whammy of what was happening in the United States, what happened to the region economically, was accompanied by other shifts in the world. Growth of populism, and we can talk about that, whether in Europe, East Asia, the United States, in Latin America. The weakening of belief of populations in their institutions and in their democratic governments. In the case of Latin America, persistent inequalities in particular, a stubborn large part of, uh, a, a, a challenge for a large part of the population to improve their living standards. And then the COVID pandemic hit, in which tens of millions of Latin Americans were plunged back into uh, much uh, more challenging living circumstances, and in which governments responded sometimes well, sometimes not so well, but in this context of this global undermining of faith in democratic governments uh, going forward. And so as uh, we looked at the Biden administration coming into play, um, things were fraying. The region was also uh, becoming of greater interest to other economies of the world. So they were negotiating free trade agreements with Canada with the European Union, with China, the Belt and Road Initiative. 21 countries in the region have agreements with China under the Belt and Road Initiative. Over the last 10 years, China has become the most important trading partner and to some extent investment partner for Latin American countries. We're still number one on investment, but the totality of the economic relationship is shifting in significant ways. Inside the United States, the Trump administration in power sort of retreated to an old-time focus on Latin America. So what did they care about? Cared about migration and control of borders. That was number one, number two, number three. And the second set of priorities was Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Well, if you're a Brazilian, an Argentine, a Mexican, a Chilean, living in the Caribbean islands, you have other priorities. Economic growth, improving services, improving education for your population, dealing with transnational crime. But the priorities of the United States seem to shrink again into a Cold War definition of our interests in the region. And the paradox is, under the first couple of years of President Trump's administration, was the high water mark for centrist and center-right governments in Latin America. They were in power in Mexico, Peru, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, Paraguay, Brazil, and a number of other countries. The door was wide open to developing, with like-minded governments, a different approach to how the region and the United States should interact with each other, but it didn't happen. So President Biden came in, the expectation in the region very much that there would be a rebuilding effort. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, and the reason I mentioned it was President Biden was also addressing a lot of other concerns. And the signal was sent early that the key concern of the administration, at least in the early months, 
was on migration and the control of our border with Mexico. And the second focus was on assisting what's called the Northern Triangle countries, which at that point were the largest source of migrants to the United States, um, Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. There were tensions with governments like Colombia and Brazil over the role they had played in our 2020 elections. There's a perception among some that the Colombians had tilted in favor of President Trump. In Brazil, you didn't need to think about perceptions because it was a very open uh, uh, favoring of uh, President Trump in the uh, campaign by President Bolsonaro of Brazil. I'm mentioning this not to make political points, but to point out that what looked like a promising opening began to be hampered. And it was hampered by the migration issue. It was hampered by the residue of what had happened during the election campaign. These tensions were eventually overcome. And it was hampered as we pushed for nearshoring and reshoring as a response to China in the context of our own relationship with China. We looked at Latin America, Mexico. These countries should be looking at the opportunities to um, be more integrated and take advantage of companies that want to move out of China, address the supply chain um, bottlenecks that we all experience during the pandemic and continue to experience to this day. There was no prioritization of that. There were no resources provided. There was no suggestion of any new trade agreements or any new trade arrangements with the region. I would go broader than that. Biden administration made a decision not to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In other words, the trade agreement with much of East Asia, which had been negotiated for years under uh, President uh, Obama and at one point had considerable bipartisan support. But times have changed. And in our country, the idea that we should be rejoining major trade agreements still is a challenge. We didn't rejoin or restart negotiations with our transatlantic partners, our most important trading, investment, political, and security relationship in the world. So we didn't do it with Latin America either. So, and I would go, uh, this is a personal opinion, very personal, as this is not an objective comment. I'm trying to be objective with the other comments. We didn't prioritize Latin America on COVID. They're our neighbors. They had, outside the United States, the highest rate of infection and deaths in the world. Instead, we did a parceling out with a little bit of assistance to every single part of the world. Everybody benefits, but there was a real crisis here. Irony, Latin America ended up responding to the COVID pandemic on its own steam, has a higher vaccination rate in most countries than we do in this country. But I'm suggesting there were any number of issues that could have been engaged on and it didn't happen. So the Summit of Americas comes along. What's that going to be about? Well, at that stage, all of this water under the bridge. And then it becomes clear that the United States is not going to invite Cuba to the Summit of the Americas. No one's saying that Cuba is not a dictatorship, that the Cuban people don't lack fundamental freedoms, that we all would like to see a change, a democratic transition in Cuba. But for some time now, every other country in the hemisphere has said, we can't have a hemispheric gathering and not include Cuba. Cuba's part of the hemisphere. And for those who would push back on that, do we go to East Asia and say, we're not gonna meet with Vietnam because it's not a democracy? Do we decide whether we're going to meet in regional groupings in other parts of the world? No, we don't. And so 
in Latin America, the pushback was pretty severe, and there was a threat of a boycott. So the threat of a boycott of a summit of the Americas the United States was hosting for the first time in almost 30 years became the story. And in the run-up to the summit of the Americas, there was a lot of negotiations to ensure senior participation. And in the end, we ended up with, I think, 24, 25 countries out of 33 participating. So uh, it was relatively successful, even though the president of Mexico was absent, as well as the presidents of Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras. And so it turned out to be, in terms of just projection, more of a success than had been anticipated. And there were important statements on regional cooperation, on future pandemics, health issues. Because migration has become a region-wide concern, a statement on migration cooperation. And there was launched a new America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. There was a focus on the importance of supply chain resiliency, on dealing with unfair trade practices from China, and so on. But the underbelly was there. The Argentine president came and in Los Angeles criticized the United States in the presence of President Biden. Mexico proposed replacing the Organization of American States, which we see as the premier organization for bringing together the countries of the hemisphere to discuss security and political issues. Mexico set time to replace it. Critically, we didn't put much new funding on the table. To give you an idea of where we are on funding, fiscal year 22, I think the Biden administration, I may have my figures wrong on this, asked for about $2 billion to $3 billion for the region. We've spent $63 billion so far for Ukraine. So at a moment, when you're speaking about your concern about the region, trying to rebuild relations, looking at Latin America as a potentially strategic partner on supply chain issues, on dealing with China, working together to address the causes of irregular migration, dealing with the surge in drug trafficking, dealing with the surge in illiberal democracies. We weren't putting much on the table. Now, I can explain that away as being a reflection of budgetary issues in the United States. But if you look at it in strategic terms, it was probably a missed opportunity in building things out. And so you look at the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, got a lot of good sounding things in it. But it's like the Indo-Pacific Partnership, which was announced, I think, in July in Japan. All of these are good initiatives and have good intentions, but at the end of the day, a resource commitment has to be there and also a willingness to take risks on integrating with other countries, which is a challenge in the current American political environment. So where do we go from here? Um, and here I will go back to what, what I've written on the subject. I'll start with my personal list of things that shouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility in the coming years. And first, given the economic crisis Latin America faces, the importance of developing better services, lifting people out of poverty, one of the primary, if not the primary objective of most Latin American governments, whether they're left, center, or right, is promoting economic growth. So thinking through a different engagement with Latin America on economic growth issues that they're concerned about, not our China concerns or whether supply chains get reestablished, but how as a region we all grow together, which by the way will also help address issues like irregular migration and uh, the, uh, uh, the crime and security issues that are so much at the center of headlines these days. Increasing regional economic integration. 
in the context of what's happening in the world. Southeast Asia is looking at integrating more. Sub-Saharan African economies are beginning to talk about it. We're seeing it in Gulf states. We're seeing it as the European Union tries to redefine its relationship. Why not in Latin America? Engage with Latin America on the green and digital revolutions. There's this idea that Latin America is simply a commodity producer. But there's country after country in Latin America where there's innovative developments on everything from e-finance to green technology. Countries like Colombia are taking innovative steps on protection of not just rainforests, but um, vast areas of the country to shift to renewable energies. Brazil, for all the headlines, like 70% of their electricity is generated by non-hydrocarbons. There's a paradox here. We're concerned about what's happening with deforestation, and rightly so. There's a lot of other positive things happening. There's a tremendous new generation of educated young Latin Americans coming out of their universities, many of them which are now world class, which can be engaged in in people-to-people -people diplomacy. I'll give you a figure. There is somewhere between 300, 400,000 Chinese students in the United States, over 200,000 from India, over 50,000 from South Korea alone. Mexico sends about 15,000 to the United States. Brazil, about 15,000. The whole of Latin America and the Caribbean is much less than 100,000. Are we interested in next generation? Are we interested in building connectivity? Is there scope here in doing some of this? So as we go forward, and I'll close with this, some suggestions on top lines on how the United States might approach the region. Given where we are now, and it is challenging, throughout Latin America right now, you have a bunch of left-wing governments that have been elected, many of them not particularly friendly in orientation towards the United States. That doesn't mean we can't work with them or there are not common issues that can be identified and pushed forward. So the first point I would make is we should recognize and respect that the region is not politically uniform. The United States does not treat Germany and France or South Korea and Japan as indistinct, but it seems when we're talking about policy in Europe and Asia, that we seem to do it with Latin America. Latin America, it's all the same. Well, no, it's not. And learning to identify what different countries have as priorities and figuring out where the synergies are wouldn't be a bad place to start. Secondly, in the environment in which there's many governments who are keeping their distance from us, we should recognize that the region's looking for dialogue, not direction from the United States. And so we can sit in Washington and drop these plans on, well, we think Latin America should focus on this, or we are going to focus on these issues with Latin America. Um, there's a missing part of the equation, which is, have you talked to the Latin American governments about it? What are their priorities? What do they think is important? in the bilateral relationships. Third, we need to go look beyond ideological differences and move forward to a new era of engagement. I'm not suggesting that what happens in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua is not extraordinarily depressing and important to confront and address. What I am suggesting is it shouldn't drive our policy towards the entire region. President Biden just made a trip to Saudi Arabia. Why? Because Saudi Arabia and the Gulf are extraordinarily important in the context of policies on nuclear proliferation in Iran, relations with Israel, security of energy supplies. It's nice to want everything to be the way you'd like to see it, but sometimes it's not possible to work that way. 
I could go more broadly, give you many other examples, but I think as we look at the region, it's not easy right now. Many of these governments are not going to be straightforward to work with. It doesn't preclude being able to do so. And in a world where we're concerned about whether Russia's gonna set off nukes in Ukraine, or where China is going on Taiwan, or what's happening on global economic patterns, how we respond to climate change challenges, it's critical to begin to be more flexible and pragmatic in the way we deal with the region. And I, of course, believe we can find $63 billion for Ukraine, and I do agree it's the preeminent issue facing us at the moment. Should be able to find a little more than $2 billion to deal with some of the concerns and partnerships we have and are trying to build with Latin America. When I stop there, I think that hits right at 646. I'm a minute over. Thank you for those remarks. We'll start the Q&A now. I have a handheld microphone, as does my colleague Grace on the other side. So please wait, we'll bring it to you so that we can record your questions for the podcast. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna repeat, I'm willing to talk about anything other than Latin America today. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for your comments. That was uh, very enlightening. I guess the question I have is, um, when we talk about funding and support, um, last time I was in South America, there was a lot of talk with China, you know, involvement, getting heavily involved. And it seems like when China provides support, they build things. They, instead of giving money, you know, sending billions of dollars, you know, they build stadiums and build roads and and do things from a physical standpoint, because people were saying like, oh, look what China did for us, look what China did for us, as opposed to giving money. And even like what we're doing with Ukraine, you know, we're providing, um, we're providing military weapons and things along the way, billions of dollars of weapons, of physical things, as opposed to cash. But um, it always seems like the US is just like giving money, saying, you know, here's a billion dollars to help and then does it really get to where it's supposed to go and do what it's supposed to do? What, do you, what are your thoughts about you know, providing physical things versus cash? Well, uh, it's a great question because the challenge going back 40, 50, 60 years on development finance and assistance uh, is whether building things is more important, bridges, roads, telecommunications in the modern age uh, than providing the kind of assistance which is more invisible, building out capacity in institutions, providing support for education, uh, and uh, for medical services, for example. And I think it's a debate that can never be resolved. Um, it all depends on the mix that an individual country may require, um, and it also involves you know, hard calculations on dollars and cents involved. So. If you're interested in building out infrastructure, as Sri Lanka um, in South Asia was, and you sign a long-term leasing deal with China uh, because they're going to build a very significant port that could be important for um, South Asian transport and help make Sri Lanka more of a hub, and then you can't pay the loan and China calls the deal in, was that a good deal? Zambia's facing some of the same questions right now. China is frankly having to rethink how it approaches collecting on debts or pressuring people to repay loans as they go forward, and it's significant that this year they've already begun to forgive uh, some of the uh, debts of some of the smaller countries that incurred them because it's it's obviously had the unintended consequences for these countries of creating greater economic problems as opposed to benefits for them. I'm not suggesting that happens with every Chinese project. I'm just trying to say there is no set rule which makes clear what's of greater benefit um, or not. I would suggest that U.S. assistance in South Korea and Taiwan in the 50s and 60s 
is heavily premised on uh, people, uh, uh, on developing institutions, on helping people uh, develop capacity um, as much as anything else, and that paid significant dividends. Um, you, the U.S. doesn't just hand money out. It's supposed to go to NGOs, it's supposed to go to civil society actors uh, through certain assistance mechanisms. We're beginning to go back into infrastructure through something called the Millennium Change Corporation, whatever it's called, MCC. We're starting to provide billions of dollars for that. As we look at the digital revolution, is it important to help countries in Latin America, for example, develop uh, better telecommunication connectivity more quickly? Um, but it, it, it really isn't black and white. And uh, I, I saw this in Afghanistan, where I was for three years. Um, what price do you put on what we did there in supporting transformation of education for girls? In 2001, um, if I remember correctly, and I'm not going to remember correctly, but um, I don't believe there were any girls in school by the time I was there uh, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, um, there were over 8 million students in classrooms. Over 3 million of them were girls. What price do you put on that? Um, the, uh, it, they went from 8,000 university students in 2001 to somewhere around 200,000. And again, a significant proportion were young women. Um, and, and so I, I would rather, yeah, I don't think it's an easy debate. And when you're in any situation, I certainly had very strong opinions on where money should go, depending on where I am. So for example, when I was in Peru and Colombia, I really wanted to see money go towards protecting the rainforest. But we didn't, and we gave small amounts. I was in Brazil as ambassador. We were contributing about $50 million to environmental programs in an area that's as big as the United States east of the Mississippi. I mean, no. Um, so, you know, but we all have what we think should be done. It really is a creative process of lots of heads coming together, trying to find an answer, and hopefully not indebting and pushing countries into more straightened economic circumstances. So, um, for full disclosure, I'm Brazilian, and <laughs> I've been in Cleveland for 21 years now. And just as a side note, um, since I came to Cleveland, I was always amazed at how Latin America in general was not on anybody's radar. It was, and, and then even, even uh, when my son was in, in preschool and going through atlases, and you would see atlases, and then you go to Latin America, and it's one page. Mm -hmm. Compared to everything else, even Africa was two pages. And I was, whoa. So as a side note, we could have a very long discussion about why that is. But uh, I was just curious to see what your perspective or a diplomatic perspective would be on Brazil. It, it was interesting that in your, in your uh, talk, you didn't talk much about Brazil or didn't refer to Brazil as a major power force there. So how would you, from a diplomatic perspective, how, how would you describe Brazil? What, how is Brazil in the world landscape right now? And I'm not a fan of Bolsonaro. <laughs> so uh, maybe it was a subconscious effort not to talk politically right before the election uh, on October 2nd. But since you raised the question, um, I was just published yesterday on Brazil. Um, and so allow me to just, your, uh, I liked your last question, which is how is Brazil in the world? Basically, uh, this, I co-authored this with uh, uh, another person, Ryan Berg. Basically, what we argue is that it's very important to begin to look for the United States, but frankly, you could say anyone in the world, to look at Brazil differently in the context of Brazil's importance in the current situation with the seismic shifts that are taking place in the world. So quickly, uh, going through it, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has elevated the urgency of diversifying 
and increasing medium-term availability of energy and food supplies. Brazil is a central and strategic player as a major energy producer, agricultural powerhouse. The country's oil and gas is now among the 10 largest in the world. Brazil is among the world's largest exporters of soybeans, corn, meat, sugar, and coffee, modern agricultural sector that can expand demand. As tensions with China expand, um, developing relationships with economies like, or countries like India and Brazil has become really important as sort of middle-sized economies in the world. And uh, we're working to strengthen our relations with the Indo-Pacific region. We should be using Brazil to strengthen our relations within the hemisphere um, as we look at issues like digital innovation and clean energy for the reasons I mentioned. Um, we uh, look forward to um, developing a different kind of relationship with multilateral institutions. Middle-sized countries like India and Brazil are critical, particularly Brazil, that believes in working through international systems. With regional trading blocks, Brazil, with the negotiations with Mercosur and uh, with the European Union, um, and as China's key uh, trading partner and investment partner in the region, how can we talk about China if we don't talk in the context of Brazil. So even though Brazil, like India, didn't take a strong stand on Ukraine, as non-aligned countries, they're not looking to take sides, but they can be partners on specific issues of interest to the United States. Brazil's beginning the process of accession to the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the rich club state, so to speak, and Brazil's central to climate change, whether we have problems with what the current government's doing or not, that we're not going to address climate change without working more constructively with Brazil. So as you can see, I do think Brazil is absolutely central and important to these issues. I just hope uh, that we begin to see a relationship develop which recognizes that. Um, hi, uh, this is really a wonderful talk. I really appreciate it. Um, I, today in the New York Times, there was an article about um, China fishing uh, off of the coast of, of many uh, South American countries. And I think the article mentioned that the uh, Biden ad administration sent a warship down to chase some of them away. I would just like to hear a little bit more um, specifics about what you think the Biden administration is doing and what you think it should be doing that it is not doing? So in, in terms of uh, US policy on Latin America, let me make clear. The administration came in and changed the tone of how to engage with Latin America. So in terms of greater respect and acknowledgement that the region has a point of view, that there's problems the region faces that need to be addressed, acknowledging that there's changes in political currents inside the region. All of that has been done. And that was also done at the Summit of the Americas with the statements that the president made. As I tried to say, our policy in the region is, however, deeply driven by domestic issues too. So it's, we're at record numbers, for example, on people being detained on the border between Mexico and the United States. I think year on year, we're at two million. We've, we've, we really haven't seen figures like this before. The, uh, I think I can say without much pushback that Cuba and Venezuela remain domestic issues in the United States, particularly in places like Florida. And so they're important as components of how the United States looks at the broader region. What I tried to suggest is that it is a broader region. There's hundreds of millions of people, dozens of countries, countries like Brazil, countries like Argentina, Chile. I would even argue uh, countries that are going through difficulties like Peru and Ecuador, where we can develop much more dynamic relationships in addressing some of the concerns I've outlined. But that requires engagement, talking, dealing with governments that don't necessarily agree with us on issues which are of importance to us. 
But we figure out how to do that with other countries and other parts of the world. I think it's important to develop that. But I also believe that we do need a resource commitment. I'm not talking about money giveaways. But as we look at digital transformation, there's development banks. Should we be doing replenishments to increase the amount of money which is provided for investments in new infrastructure, in digitalization, in improving services, in addressing services which are important to citizenry, like basic health services. Health services in many Latin American countries are highly centralized, for example. Um, but what the pandemic showed is you need to be able to be e efficiently available at the grassroots level. Otherwise, everybody's flowing to few places of service. What I'm trying to suggest is there's a lot to work with, but it also depends on resource commitments. And finally, I don't want to press the button on Latin America doesn't get paid attention to in the United States, but it doesn't. You know, I grew up in Latin America. I worked on Latin America. And it's a real paradox since 15 to 18% of our population is now of uh, Hispanic descent. And we need to understand how the region in the context of a changing world is absolutely critical to the United States. This isn't simply a question of addressing problems. It's a question of redefining hemispheric relations. We worry about East Asia, and we're rightly looking at regional groupings through Indo-Pacific to respond to what we see as challenge from China. In Europe, certainly starting last year, we rediscovered NATO and the importance of sustaining and building out and modernizing the security relationship that we have. Uh, with our most important partners that happen to be European, Western European countries. Why shouldn't we start looking at Latin America in the same terms? Latin America, many of the countries are middle-income countries. These are not poor places. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous number of positive things going on, figuring out on how to make the engagement much more dynamic on a scale we have with East Asia and Europe. Maybe not on the same scale, sorry. I mean, that's aspirational, but you know, sort of trying to work towards that possibility. That's not the mindset. So we need to change how we think in our heads about what Latin America represents for uh, the United States. So. Listening to your assessment of uh, uh, U.S. policy and Latin America, I couldn't but see a lot of parallelism with the Middle East. And I'm thinking about Saudi Arabia, for example, lately the crown prince and officials, Saudi officials, have been complaining about U.S. policy and complaining how it is shunning them and closing its doors to them, while at the same time it's exerting efforts to revitalize the nuclear deal with Iran, when Iran has only played a very destructive and disruptive role around the countries uh, in, its, uh, in, in its surroundings. And I'm thinking about Iraq, how it has undermined Iraqi democracy, and we see that even Shi'i citizens in Iraq are demonstrating against Iran, who are supposed to be allies to Iran. And then in Syria, again, uh, with Russia helping keep the Assad regime while the U.S. has withdrawn, and to the extent that even now Iran controls Lebanon, that used to be a pro-Western country, and Hezbollah basically is a, uh, a pro-Iranian militia that, is, that even controls who becomes the president in, in Lebanon. So it seems what the Saudis are saying, they're right on in the, f in, in the way that uh, the United States is either alienating its Arab allies or losing its allies, like in Iraq, in Lebanon. And uh, so what is the foreign policy of the U.S. in the Middle East, in the Arab world? Is it, are they retrieving and leaving a vacuum of power for Russia and Iran and China with its economic investments to come in and take the place of the U.S.? Or is there, is there any clear assertive policy of the U.S.? of the U.S. in the Middle East? So I'm going to try to answer that in two minutes. <laughs> the, um, but I'm going to start with your last point. And I probably didn't make this clear. In fact, I know I didn't. But I'm going to give, again, a very personal view on this. 
We keep looking at things in zero-sum terms. So the United States leaves and the Chinese are going to come in and replace us, or the Russian sphere of influence is going to extend in Central Asia if we're not more proactive there. The examples are myriad. By looking at the world that way, we're assuming that countries don't have their own opinions about how they manage their relationships or that they're not capable of managing their relationships. So to go back to Brazil, for example, and the relationship it has with China. Brazil's a $1.6, $1.9 trillion economy. Trade is a very small part of their gross national product. Yeah, China's big in Brazil because Brazil's a big economy. It doesn't follow. Brazil doesn't know what it's doing with China. Take the United States and China. For two administrations now, we've had tremendous sanctions on China. What was the biggest year in trade relations between China and the United States? It's last year, $700 billion of two-way trade. We don't think we're doing taken over by China. We're figuring out how to manage the relationship with China. So what I'm trying to suggest here is the idea that the United States is less of an influence or less important in certain regions, it doesn't follow that our global adversaries or whatever term you want to use are going to replace us. The world's changing. Regions are changing. Countries are more powerful, more secure about their own regions, about their own politics, about their own vision of the future. It doesn't follow that this is becoming a battle for influence between two or three countries. And frankly, it's usually narrowed down to between the United States and China. It's an important point, but it's not the only way to look at what's happening when the United States is said to be less influential in certain regions. To your point on the Middle East, you're absolutely correct. And it's been going on for five, six, seven years now. The United States losing influence in the Middle East Gulf states, more broadly, even in uh, North Africa. And uh, by the way, the same argument is presented for how the United States plays in Latin America right now. Secretary Blinken took a trip to Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and all of the coverage was on the United States losing influence. Um, it's a relative concept. So we're still important in these regions, but the world's changing and there's other actors. And as I said, countries have their own priorities. To counter the perception that we're less important in the Middle East, and frankly, you were talking about the Levant and the Gulf. We remain the most critical security alliance for the Emirates, for Bahrain, for Kuwait, for Saudi Arabia. It's just, there's just no questions that that security relationship continues to be extraordinarily important for these countries, and it's not going away. Our diplomacy, and I say it going back to the Trump administration, with a focus on bridging the differences between Israel and a number of Arab governments has actually created an environment in which there's less tension now, not more, in uh, the question of how Israel uh, relates to the broader region. On Syria, it is an extraordinarily complex issue. And uh, I'll just say that not all issues get resolved in ways that are satisfactory to what the policy makers intend. And it remains a challenge. And Iraq remains a challenge. And Lebanon remains a challenge. But it doesn't mean that we're not part of working the solutions, working with governments in the region to find a way forward. In terms of the Iran nuclear deal, this is something that's open to debate and has been debated in Washington for years. Is it better 
to have an agreement that at least restrains the development of nuclear weapons capability, even if it ends in 10, 12 years with the sunset clauses, than to not have one at all, which means the nuclear weapon capabilities can be developed from one year to the next. Can sanctions prevent or strengthen sanctions prevent Iran from following down a certain path? I'm not gonna try to resolve that debate. I think it's a legitimate policy debate. There's arguments on both sides. But the United States is very central to all of this as well. So if we're looking at this in terms of the United States driving policy in the Middle East, no, it's not. But does it remain among the outside actors, the most important outside actor in the Middle Eastern context, it does remain. So we can discuss the specifics separately, but I did an overview there. Do you think there's another question there? This is gonna be our last question. Hello, good, uh, good evening, uh, Ambassador. Thank you for coming to Cleveland. Um, just one quick question. What do you think is the biggest threat to the United States not doing, um, not having strategic alliances or um, making more partnership initiatives in countries such as Sub-Saharan Africa or regions rather, such as Sub-Saharan Africa or um, Latin America and just developing regions around the world? What do you think is probably the most, the largest danger to our economy in ignoring that initiative? So I think that's a terrific question to end on because I'm gonna fall back on the article I quoted earlier, but uh, I'm gonna fall back on what is being written about more in the past several months because there's a lot of debate right now inside Washington among, I assume, as a former government official, former, but when, we were, when, when I was inside government and Heather was inside government, we read what these people wrote and it influenced how people inside government approach things. But I'll speak about what's being written and what's being discussed. And it's essentially that the United States obviously needs to sustain its traditional alliances in NATO, which we discovered thanks to, rediscovered thanks to Ukraine, in East Asia, which we rediscovered thanks to Taiwan. But how do we deal with a world where we're not speaking about global action or global agreement on where things should go anymore? We should be building, the, the arguments go, is we should be building alliances with like-minded nations depending on the issue which is under discussion. So say on trade, there's 30 countries that agree that there needs to be a regulatory framework for addressing cybersecurity. How do you develop internationally accepted standards for cybersecurity across borders? Well, if you're not gonna get 100 nations, what's wrong with starting with 20 or 30? If you're talking about global food policy, look at the major world food producers, the impact of climate change, now the impact of war with Ukraine, all of a sudden, everybody realizing how important Ukraine was to the supply chain for food in the Middle East and other parts of the world. What's wrong with starting a forum to discuss better policies to assure um, basic foodstuffs around the world when you have shocks like the one we're experiencing this year? On climate change, you can drive a train through the opportunities that exist to work with half a dozen, a dozen Latin American countries on climate change legislation. They have it on their books. They're looking at investing and greening their economies. They're protecting biospheres. Uh, is it Ecuador, Colombia, and Mexico? I can't remember. I've just agreed on this. Hundreds of thousands of ocean, protecting ocean on the overfishing question that came up. Uh, earlier. Um, so this approach, I think, can work. Sub-Saharan Africa, it's, uh, I, I worked 
a dozen years of my life on on African issues and I, and, and 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 lived in Uganda and Mozambique. I I don't like generalizing about 47 countries and regions that are just so disparate. But in terms of uh, and and I think it's fair to acknowledge that the United States is not the most influential actor in sub-Saharan Africa. We were influential up to a point when there were conflicts in play. So there were many wars, particularly in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s. The United States played an important role helping negotiate solutions and so on, but we're not first actor. But we can work with other actors on issues like deforestation in the Congo, pandemic response. Um, very little was done during COVID for sub-Saharan African countries, for example. Um, so, and certainly, I'm suggesting we also have the traditional alliances that we continue to build on. But what is emerging from all of these people talking is maybe there's a different way to do this, be less ambitious about it, but actually get from A to B, working with like-minded partners. And I think I'm certainly convinced by it. I live inside the Beltway, so I'm drinking that message down. It seems like a good approach uh, to me in a very complex and increasingly fragmented world. And so on that cheerful note, um, I just want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. It was terrific being with you this evening. Best. Thank you.